0: Hello, this is
1: your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time, and I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about would tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is, this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app, and you'll also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website, because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. If you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the programme. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place?
0: But I also realized that focus on being the absolute best student you could, getting the right grades and everything, impressing the professors and so on, that is not a path to success in life. And the reason it's not, it's not a path to success in life is that life doesn't have a syllabus. Life doesn't have a rubric. Life doesn't have tests that you study for that are going to be on a certain date. Life is a bit more like testing and measuring.
1: Our guest on the show today is a professional ghostwriter with over 80 books to his credit. He's become so well known for his skill at bringing these books together that his name often appears on the cover. Joshua Lysek was homeschooled. 30 years ago, this was unusual. His education was unstructured and yet self-guided. Part of it was reading every page of the 1976 Bicentennial edition of the Encyclopedia Americana. His unusual education gave him a general knowledge based on just about everything. But it did not stop him continuing into university where he got hooked on education and collected three degrees. One of them... Being a business degree. However, by his own admission, he left university with no usable skills. That did not stop him getting a job in the telecoms industry, working on standard operating systems. He was working on collating and creating standard operating systems. That process served him well as it taught him how to analyse systems and it became the foundation of his work with entrepreneurs when ghostwriting their books. However, he had a sense that Telecom's SOP work was not going to be a career. And that was confirmed by his supervisor, who said to him, Joshua, your skill set is bigger than this job. You should be a professional writer. Taking her at her word, that is exactly what he did. And he went off and wrote several fiction novels, which led to his ghostwriting career. That was 11 years ago, and he's been a professional writer ever since. Our conversation is about his journey into writing, into ghostwriting and how his work shifted out of the shadows where clients now ask him to collaborate with them and have his name on the cover. We touch on AI and how it will impact writing and how it will change the future of the industry. Apparently AI is easy to detect but there are some positive benefits. So let's join the conversation with Joshua Lysak. Where did it all start for you? It started with being homeschooled.
0: In fact, here, it's homeschooling is growing in popularity in the States. But back when I was homeschooled, there weren't so many of us. What mm. homeschooling looked like 20, 25, 30 years ago was a bit of self-directed learning from the child, self-generated initiative. For me, one of my favorite things to do was reading the entire encyclopedia Americana, A through Z. We had a bicentennial edition published in 1976. And given that there wasn't a whole lot of socialization and, and, uh, let's say, social activities in those days, we had to kind of find our own fun uh, as homeschooled young'uns. And for me, that was soaking up as much information as I could. Now, what's been interesting is fast forwarding many, many, many years later now, I have a little bit of a knowledge base of just about everything from those early days of reading something. So when someone reaches out to me and says, Joshua, I want to write a book because I'm a, I'm a professional ghostwriter. When someone says, I want to write a book about topic X. I have been aware of topic X since I was little
1: you must have some very strange memories of things in that book because i can you imagine some of the things that appeared in that encyclopedia are totally worthless and useless today but they must be very very weird things that they would have written about i mean i can remember Encyclopedia britannica was just as weird and, and and to some extent quite colonial i seem to remember so um it is a snapshot in time those books aren't they really
0: they are yes yes very different from from wikipedia
1: Obviously, following through this childhood thing, how long did you? How long were you homeschooled for?
0: My entire my entire life, frankly, from from the beginning through uh, so, through you know, teenage years. How into, did that?
1: How did how did you mesh and dovetail into the modern world that requires you to have you know bits of paper and those sort of things?
0: I was able to get college education. I have th- I have three college degrees. Oh wow! Uh, from 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 universities and. It turns out going from being homeschooled to going to a public college or a public university is a significant step down in terms of academic rigor. It was a bit of a cliff, in fact. And I was shocked how little anybody else seemed to care about scholastic accolades and whatnot. It was, I'm here to get a, I'm here to get a good, uh, good education so I can get a good job. That, that seemed to be how low the bar was for the average person, even those who had perfect uh, GPAs or grade point averages there. And, and, I, and I certainly did. But I also realized that focus on being the absolute best student you could, getting the right grades and everything, impressing the professors and so on, that is not a path to success in life. And the reason there's not it's not a path to success in life is that life doesn't have a syllabus. Life doesn't have a rubric. Life doesn't have tests that you study for that are going to be on a certain date for the most part. and you have to regurgitate proper information or communicate an essay or put together your research report, and you know exactly what the criteria for grading are. Life is a bit more like testing and measuring. And I've since met several engineers and work with engineers. And the engineering profession is antithetical to academic focus on having the absolute best, let's say, success one can, which was me. Engineering is data flights, data tests. What can we get? What can we glean from this it's iteration
1: well it's it same science the isn't it? it's like how do we get closer and closer to the goal how do we how do we uh, how do we shave off a bit more time off that and how do or how do we make a bit more precision in that it's those things isn't it it's i guess
0: it is it is what what the, oh, uh, that
1: don't work what, at all let's try something else <laughs>
0: yes yes exactly and, and you iterate well what, what what part of it didn't work and you and you analyze which part right. of it and then you you continually iterate whereas in let's say, those focus on academic excellence and and achievement. When you have an essay, when you have, let's say, deliverable, Mm. and there's not testing and measuring in the face of uncertainty, it's not real preparation for life, in my opinion and from my perspective, because everything is uncertainty. Everything is risk assessment. Everything is a quote-unquote data flight, you know, which comes from aerospace so, engineering
1: so let's just jump back a bit so you went to university you found it easy because everyone else is Your you work you're used to working harder what did yes. you come out with
0: almost zero practical skills okay. for the workforce okay um, <laughs> i had one class that was like i think it was called a, a capstone course and it was a local businessman and entrepreneur who had donated money to one of the universities, and it was kind of his, um, it was within his purview to kind of prepare all these young adults for what life in work was going to be like once everyone finished. And it was a bit of a wake-up call because he he said to all of us, you know, much of what you learn at university does not apply to getting a job. Because employers don't care what your GPA was for the most part, and I was, oh, what <laughs> they don't? <laughs> what what have I been working so hard for? He said, "No, can you do the job? Do you come in with the skills necessary?" And I thought, how come no one's told us this? That just shows how how <laughs> how, how naive I was. Like obviously, ability, capabilities, and abilities, uh, and experience, and. Speed to, well, getting up the speed in any type of a, a job or, or work um, is supreme to the, let's say, skill set which allows one to excel academically, which was me, which was a lot of people. Um, and yet here was this fellow who was the very first person to say, you know, that matters. Can you can you do the job? He said, We're, we are looking for people who have the experience, who have the job. Well, how do you get the experience? Well, you get the job. How do you get the job? You have the experience. How do you get the experience? You get, well, you get the job. And he said, now that paradox, that chicken and egg, you have to figure that one out. Figure that one out yourself.
1: He said to us. And That's where they, they turn up. We can have an internship and they'll do that. For, you can do that for free and then we will then you get the experience. Yes, there
0: is a there is a significant amount of unpaid labor in the in the book publishing industry in yeah. the Western world. And in I the, have, the art I industry
1: have, and in every other industry, in those things, yeah, the music industry, also sorts of places, yes, absolutely. So what happened? Did you go and work with this guy?
0: Uh no, I re- <sighs> um I, I earned a, a a full ride scholarship that his company <laughs> had, had put into the university. Again, just just the focus on the academic excellence. You know what what can I what can I do to get? And I I got I got quite a few scholarships. Um, and that was that was nice. Frankly, it was still a bit of putting off "quote unquote" the real world. Uh, uh, a, a little bit because it's not exactly like it's not exactly one to one with what you need to win deals or let's say win or new business. Inside of, inside of the real world. I will, I will tell you, all the most helpful business framework I learned to help me make that transition from the academic mindset of memorization, regurgitation, was a business framework I first learned about from a Harvard Business Review piece by Clayton Christensen called Jobs to be Done. Now, I believe a fellow named Tony Ulwick out of a company in San Francisco it was the first to come up with the jobs to be done concept. So here, here is me with a business degree, entering business, not knowing anything, having no practical skills because most most classes and most courses at university are based on what the professors know, not what employers want so there is a there's a horrific misalignment and of course colleges and universities aren't rewarded for job placement they're rewarded for giving you a credential they have to figure out what to do with right so there's a serious misalignment and incentive misalignment I
1: can, I can remember my own business stuff I did it was all about break-even points and these bits and pieces which I so you go and work in a company you don't know any, you need any of that yeah what you need to know is how to talk to a customer Yes. And, and how yes. to Is make the, someone and stuff? how to make someone who's unhappy happy how, how to how to um fend off the uh, the angry customer and, and keep them sweet and make them better
0: sure thing like how, how to quickly learn your way around a sophisticated enterprise software using it for specific business purposes yeah uh, how do you solve business problems how do you collaborate with people who don't like you uh yes how do you perform technical support live with an irate person or how do you negotiate? How do you make a deal? How do you draw mm. a contract?
1: But these uh, are human These are human qualities. They're not necessarily business qualities. They are in a business context. But what they are is about learning to navigate human relationships.
0: That's right. And pro- you know, pro- project management being another one here.
1: Oh, yeah. Big one.
0: Other courses on anything. Maybe, maybe things have changed in the last uh, 10, 11 years since I was out of uh, university. It doesn't seem so from. from there are, I think there
1: it. is an awareness of it. I think there's more of an awareness of it, isn't there? But I, I guess they think those qualities are natural with people, but of course they're not always, are they? People have to. Yeah. But getting back to your life and the journey you're on, so you you went into business with a with a after a business degree.
0: I did. Yes. Nice. The, well, did
1: you, what industry did you choose to go into?
0: I ended up immediately in telecommunications, mm-hmm. but. that's a bit of a misnomer because I wasn't quote unquote doing telecommunications. What I was doing was designing a knowledge base of standard operating procedures, policies, best practices, so that the company could lower hiring costs, lower training costs and save time by having over 300 here's how to do this aspect of this job step-by-step with no step skip. That was extraordinarily helpful for me because as I would eventually begin ghostwriting nonfiction books for CEOs, business owners, and entrepreneurs, what I would be doing is documenting their system, their way of doing things, their operating formula or framework. And when you're writing a book, or rather, when you're reading a book, you want the author to have thought through it, how to do it step by step with no steps skipped.
1: Yeah. So now
0: when I'm ghostwriting a book and I'm and interviewing the, the author, it's not just, OK, well, here's a chapter on this aspect of it. Here's a chapter on this aspect of it. It's how can we take the reader who is a complete stranger to you, most likely, and get them up to speed and able to competently do and get the result you're promising with a step-by-step with no step skipped ordering of the information. Just like I said, the standard operating procedure that I wrote many years ago would be read by someone who graduated college with a degree and had no practical skills.
1: And it does amaze me. And I've got some pretty thick tomes on my shelf on, on various subjects, particularly ones around um, human development and that sort of stuff. And then the book themselves, literally a quarter of the book is references. And it's just thinking about that level, of, that level of, of sophistication and management to have all those references, page references to where they quoted it or where they went, of the source materials. Just amazing that someone does that. I mean, I guess that must be a big spreadsheet or something. Is that, is that how it's done?
0: Yes, in this case, it was, a, um, it was sort of a private intranet. It was a, it was a wiki. It's yeah. so like Wikipedia, of course, is kind of an encyclopedia, right? But it was yeah. it was a bit like that, where everything was nested information. So here you have the different departments, department level, yeah. and then there was role level, and then there was task level. And so someone who was starting a new job, let's say, in, in technical support, for example, and this allowed us to hire people who had just graduated with, like, an English degree, knew nothing about telecom in the industry or anything whatsoever, And they would just watch these videos and follow these instructions i had written up and they would be able to competently do the job so and it was it was a sort of a training experience
1: so was this a one was this a a contract you were on or was it a a long-term job because imagine you get to the point you finish the job
0: there was quite a bit to do while i was there at that company but I realized early on that there was not going to be the career path I was, Mm. and frankly, my generation was promised. Mm. And I gave a TED talk about this, by the way, that the best way to get what you want out of your career is to create your own. And what that meant was there was a moment... Not quite a year into my employment there, where my immediate supervisor, boss, you might say, she took me aside and said, Joshua, you don't have a future here. And the reason you don't have a future here is because your skill set is bigger than this job. My advice if you want to make it big, go be a professional writer.
1: Hmm.
0: And I thought wow okay I guess I should do that and so I uh, a few days later I turned my my resignation and have been a full-time professional writer since then
1: how many years ago was that then
0: that was almost 11 years ago now, I had I had been doing a little bit of freelance writing on the side and I and I had and I've gotten a book deal for two novels that I'd written from a small independent press uh, at that time hmm. so I wasn't entirely new to writing for dollars, let's say, words for cash. But it was not anything close to like, hey, this is going to be better than a, uh, a full time, you know. Was this writing employment. fiction or
1: nonfiction?
0: The novels that I wrote were fiction. Mm-hmm. However, I parlayed that into working in the nonfiction space. Because there were several people who read my novels, who reached out to me afterwards and said, Joshua, I so enjoyed your book. Can you help me write mine? Because I've wanted to write it longer than you've even been alive. These are older individuals uh, I had these conversations with.
1: I'm curious and why they would reach out to you as a fiction writer to have that conversation. Because there, so there, there are so many people that write novels, that are, or people that are book specialists or book helpers. Why would they choose to write to reach out to you? There must be something about it that attracted them.
0: Yes, it was because a they wanted to write their their memoir for a number of a number of years, okay. had difficulty at it, and couldn't get beyond autobiographical thinking, like the Wikipedia version of your life. Such and such was born here in this place mm, to these yeah. parents and blah, blah, and Then Nobody wants to read that. But they read my novels and thought, wow, this guy can write. I wonder. He helped me with mine. Mm. And the conversation went like, Joshua, the way that you have these characters and these settings and these, these experiences and reflections, can you do that but for my life story? Was the, was the question uh and lo and behold that's how i became a professional ghostwriter now here's the thing i didn't know that it was even called ghostwriting i didn't know that the ghostwriting was even a thing so i got my first ghostwriting projects and and clients before knowing what it was and neither did they they did not know that there was a profession because they were both um uh business owners both of them are business owners and and were not in the Let's say publishing space or literature or anything in like you know at all in that. And here I was, having come from publishing and knowing about that space, and there was that sense of well, he he did he did he went all the way down to the end, through up and through publishing, and here he is signing books and you know on on author panels and all this uh, fun stuff here. That was meaningful to them. And so they, not knowing what ghostwriting was, just said, Joshua, can you help me with my book too? And I said, okay, sure, I'll help you. And I've been saying that ever since.
1: So how do you write in someone else's voice?
0: Most people have the same voice, I have found. And usually when someone tells me, Joshua, it's really important that it sound like me. It's really important that it be in my writing style. That's a tip off. We might also call it a red flag that they have no author voice. That their quote unquote writing style is rambling nonsense.
1: <laughs> Sound like it is then. <laughs>
0: yes. And if their <clears throat> voice is rambling nonsense, having reading having read, you know, if I could read something else that they've written, like perhaps <clears throat> it's a, an article or an email newsletter or a speech that they've given. And I recognize that. I think. Oh, okay. We have we have an ego. We have to we have to handle here. So usually, someone's obsession with their author voice is is uh, directly correlated with the size of their ego, and that ramification is they will be a difficult client.
1: It's about how precious he- they are with their words, isn't it? At the end of the day, I mean, I, I've dealt with clients before that insist on a particular word stage, and I'm going, it's not needed. You know, we have this argument over a flipping word. You think so? Like, hmm.
0: But that's right. That's right.
1: <clears throat> you know, so it's, so it's, you know, it's as you say, it's it's about people have that that they attach a lot of meaning and value to it. So, um, um how many books have you written now? Then
0: four of my own under my own name. Yeah, but eighty-four for non-fiction clients.
1: That's that's quite a few a year, isn't it?
0: That's a lot. Yeah, that's that's... that's, that's roughly seven to nine books uh, a year
1: yeah you must spend a lot of time sitting on your bum typing yes (laughs) and where's the passion in it all for you what what's driving all of this
0: i saw my literary dreams come to pass i was 20 21 years old most people that I ghostwrite for, like those two first clients, have wanted to write their book for that long, but just never gotten around to it or never quite figured it out. Maybe they took a, you know, an online writing <clears throat> class or they hired a book coach or perhaps they even reached out to a ghostwriting agency and got something back and they said, I don't know what my book is going to be, but it's definitely not this. <laughs> I've got a lot of those. I once had a ghostwriting client that I was the I was the eleventh ghostwriter, not that he talked to, that he had hired for the project.
1: He spent a lot of money on that project.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> he was a, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist. So he <laughs> <Could afford laughs> it. Yeah, the, the 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 budget was larger than larger than usual, but it um it it, it had to be right and not others had quite figured it out yet which is a good segue into what a lot of people are asking me about now, which is the effect of AI on authorship or publishing that whole.
1: Space. It is interesting how that, well, that's going to go. Absolutely interesting. How it's going to go. Um,
0: yes. I'm more interested in what AI is not going to affect, what AI is not, not going yeah. to impact. And I, I
1: and can see, I can see Amazon doing very well out of um, instant books. You know, like you, know, you can see, like Amazon give me a story about this and this and this, and it just goes and writes it for you. And there's no author to pay, and they just ching. And for some people, that will be good enough. It's not going to be prize winning, but for someone who wants some packed fiction or some more salacious material, I'm sure Amazon will be delighted to help them.
0: Sure thing, sure thing. There's something to be said for what text generators are able to do. Hmm. So in many ways, they are superior to a uh, to, to a Google search, to an internet search, in many hmm. ways. And they are excellent brainstorming partners. But what they're, in my experience, unable to do well is two types of writing. And this is where ghostwriting still has value with the ghostwriter and with the client, or with the editor. And with the author, the first of which is the memoir, because the corpus that went into the LLM, the information that went into to train to teach this GPT, it doesn't have access to your life story. No, it doesn't have access to your insights and lessons. Those are all up here for you as the as the author.
1: No, it can't so recreate what? that. It, that has to come out the individual it's your, it's because it's a chronological story.
0: Yes, and it's usually through an, inter- through an interview process <clears throat> or through conversations because it's the human who has to know what to ask. Mm. It's it's you, the person, who's being prompted, not the, uh, the the artificial intelligence that is. And then the other is sophisticated, complex, technical <laughs> topics, usually frameworks, methods systems that are fresh, that are new, that are unique creations of the author, because it's that awareness that the author has something that figured out this problem, that's what separates it from what currently exists out there in their industry, which has all gone into training the AI is a part of it. So the AI output will only be able to give what currently exists, not what complex, sophisticated insights and information and whatnot that have been figured out by uh, by the person themselves. And to unpack that, to document that, to figure out how it all works... That's what the author has to do. And it's often with the help of a human ghostwriter. So, again, the ghostwriter is prompting the human rather than an aspiring author prompting an AI.
1: Mm. But do you see AI having a I mean, how, where do you see AI going in, in, the, in the writing? Field? I mean, I know that are the writers still on strike in the US for, for on the AI conversation? Did that there had
0: been recently a, um, a a writing strike, but that has, as far as I know, has been, been kind of wrapped up. AI was part of that conversation.
1: Well, I know it was because they were because what the studios were doing—they were taking a concept and having the AI run the concept up, and then giving it to writers just to edit. They weren't giving them to give any any input into it, so no one was getting any any rewards from it. it wasn't their program? It was the AI's.
0: That's similar to what the controversy was at the frankfurt book fair a few weeks ago and that ai was one of the major topics and i chatted with somebody who wrote up a, who, who kind of a, a documented the, the 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 takeaway the key takeaways um the book publishing industry c-suite is thrilled about ai <laughs> and everyone else is mortified Again, those who work in the industry. And it's because AI enters or brings speed into the workflow for everything. And there has long been an expression when it comes to product design that you can have something good, fast, or cheap, pick two. AI brings all three. In many cases, it's free. Now, you still need a human in many of these workflows, be it outlining something, be it designing initial concepts that a human can then iterate on. Or But or, they
1: don't get paid anything. royalties, do they? They get employed as a job on the process. That's the problem, of course.
0: And another, another concern is that output of an AI is not copyrightable
1: ah that's good news that's good news if that's the truth that is really good news then that stops it becoming mainstream
0: there's still quite a bit that that ai is capable of doing Mm. that the out the output directly of which is not going to be
1: so if a company commissions an ai to write a book for them on a topic and then chooses to publish that book if they stick a name on it and not, I don't, don't admit to it being AI generated, they've got copyright. Yeah.
0: If they won't disclose that it's AI. Yeah. They could always always lie about it. Sure. But I will say that what is an output of AI is detectable by a human as being. AI, at least by a professional writer. So I could read something and I instantly know with somewhere above a 90% success rate, a 90% hit rate, that it was or was not written by. What,
1: what makes it AI. identifiable for you?
0: AI written text, be it a chapter, an email, what have you. They will often use the exact same language or word pattern over and over and over. That's the first thing. So, for example, they might say, one paragraph begins. It's important to understand that verb, comma, verb, comma, verb. For example, like, doing this and doing this and doing this, so gerunds, right? And then the very next paragraph begins, it's important to understand that gerund, gerund, gerund. That, Wait a second, that's that's not right. What's going on there? Mm. Why did the, Why did the next paragraph begin the exact same way as the previous one. Oh, I see. That's one. <laughs> the next is that the app chat GPT and those that use what's called GPT three and three, GPT three and a half, even GPT four, they write similar to how you would imagine someone who has a book report due in the morning for a book they didn't read. (laughs) That's the level of depth of understanding presented by the student Mm. that is also presented by ChatGPT, particularly if you're prompting it to write you a book on something. And it's going to remix information that's already existed. Yeah. Now here's the thing, Mm. remixing information that's already existed, can be extraordinarily helpful from a workflow perspective. So using AI and workflows, like for example, take you know, turn turn this meeting recording into a transcript that's edited and has a five to seven bullet point list tasks task list created that's automatically put inside of our project management tool called Trello, for example, with Words on these topics being assigned to people in specific departments based on what the AI reads the task as being about. And then those people are then emailed. That is incredible mm. saving of time that mm. AI does sign of this workflow. And uh, it's absolutely amazing. Mm. There's not any concerns around the copyright there. No. Because it's, it's, it's frankly, it's moving information from one form to another mm. quickly in a way that a human would do manually. It's a bit like oxen and plow versus a tractor. A human is still involved in this, but the productivity of a single human is astronomically higher. And what's interesting is that the more capable of a professional someone is in their domain, the more useful AI is to them. So the better a farmer you are, for example, the more you will get out of using a tractor instead of a Plow.
1: And they use AI as well. Their tractors these days—they <laughs> exactly, have all yes. sorts of data telling which bit of the, how you know how the field is different as they go over it. So, yeah. so what? What is it that, as I said, you what, what, did we cover where your passion is in this? How how you get passionate about the, the doing these, creating these books for people? What Recently, how do you I get fed it, by? it was, it
0: was that. Uh, Paul, when I was basically a youngun, yeah, just fresh out of out of uh, adolescence into the real world, that's when I had my literary dreams come true. It turns out that you have a lot of time as a homeschooled kid, <laughs> without many friends and without much of a social life. You have a lot of time on your hands, and that's in addition to reading. I fill that time with mm. writing. That's mm. where the the novels came into it came into play there. Given that I had fulfilled what for many people is a lifelong dream, and I did it twice. Of course. It became fulfilling to help other people mm. do the exact same, to have their book in their hands.
1: But do they feel it's their book, given that you've written it for them?
0: Yes, every time. And the reason they feel it's theirs every time is because it's their story their experiences, their ideas, but it's the best literary representation of their ideas. It's the best way to say it, which I have as a trademark, by the way. And they feel more proud of my work for them than they had of their own first attempts at it, because it's right.
1: Mm, Nice. Yeah, yeah. And it still gives you a buzz completing a book for for someone? Yes. It's nice to be happy in your work, that's all I can say. Yes. So you mentioned success at some stage in this conversation. How do you define success for yourself?
0: I think success is more or less like engineering. Because what I do is, I, 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 because business is, business is a type of engineering, I think. Book writing, book publishing—it's a bit of, of of engineering where there's testing, measuring, iterating, trying this, trying that, so on and so forth. It's not—it's not at all like uh, academic success, which is okay. Here is a bar you have to meet it. You can get, get 100%, get an A plus on your exam, for for example, um, as as defined and decided by someone else with this rubric and the syllabus. You know, here's here's how you're being graded, and here's what you're going to be graded on. That was my whole definition of success. And then applying that to life, you realize that life isn't isn't that way. There's there's no mm-hmm. syllabus or rubric to life or exam or, or scheduled exam or end of the test. <laughs> success is more so people say, oh, success is a journey. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. It's something like that. It's something like that, where you are improving. It's where you are running what's called an OODA loop. OODA standing for observe, orient, decide, and act. Nice. And the most successful people in life are able to quickly run and then rerun OODA loops in any domain where they observe what's what's going on, what are the factors at play, what's going on. Well, you orient yourself in it. Well, where am I in this industry, in this project? What's my orientation? Where, where am I stationed? How far along am I already? What do I already possess what, versus what do I lack? And then you decide what to do next. And it's something that goes into the decision-making process. How do you analyze the risks and the probabilities? And then from there, you act. And then you <laughs> observe what the outcomes were, what changed. Orient yourself in it. And then you continue running the, 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 the loops. Entrepreneurship is... OODA loop running. And those who are least successful in business run the slowest Oda loops. They take months or years to decide and even longer to act. And then there's a waiting period between acting and then observing what they got versus what they hoped they, they would get in the orientation stage.
1: Where does OODA it's OODA loop come where from? It's at, the time
0: is, ever, uh, as
1: where does OODA loop come from? It's the first time I've ever heard it.
0: I don't know the originator of OODA loops, frankly, but I, I've heard several people teach OODA loops over the years. And uh, there's a number of different sources. Mm. That are, that are I, and that I've form.
1: heard the phrase like iterate quickly, fail fast and move on.
0: Yes, that's a better way to think about it. And, and often a first effort is good enough. And I have also learned that in business, throwing to together a minimum viable product that's not perfect and that is in fact is very imperfect if people use it people like it you've got something there
1: Mm.
0: and i've done that with a number of projects so you
1: can't throw you can't throw a minimum viable book minimum viable book can you really
0: yes minimum viable course it, it turned out that I, I didn't even intend to be a professional ghostwriter, but it turned out that my books, my novels, were minimum viable marketing for that uh, service. And mm-hmm. I, I ran that OODA loop. I could have said, no, my, my measure of success is how many novels I write and how many novels I get published, I mean, royalties I get from that. But I observed that there were fantastic money-making opportunities in ghostwriting. And so I oriented myself away from running my own stuff to writing for other people. Do you, do I you decided.
1: Still, do you still yearn for this the, the novel? Do you have a, a, a you know a, an idea for a um, you know your opus, your opus supreme, whatever you, what you would call it?
0: I finished that this year. Uh, oh, my first nonfiction book under my own name. As a matter of fact, it is so good they call you a fake. <laughs> good they call you a fake it's a riff on a book published in 2012 by a fellow named cal newport that was called so good they can't ignore you many many listeners will have heard of that book and the idea is that competence in your domain is good enough to become a public figure in your industry to become the go-to authority That is no longer the case in the internet age in which billions have access to your client base, to your niche. In the internet space, the last rite of passage is having haters, critics, trolls. Negative attention spreads much further, much faster than positive attention. Particularly negative attention, which calls you out as being a fake, a fraud, a cheat, a scammer. I have gone viral a number of times on the internet. And it's always been negative. And part of the negativity has been, look at this guy claiming he's written all these books. Obviously, he's a liar. It's not humanly possible to write as many books as he claims he has. And all of his income earnings that he, has, that he has said he's been able to do in books he's sold, obviously, that's a lie, too. Look at his, you know, so I've, I've been publishing an excerpt of my tax return, for example, like, as proof of income, right? People say, well, obviously, it's Photoshopped. See this line right here? It's like grayed out a little bit. He forgot that. It's obviously Photoshopped, right? So the premise of the book is how to become so good at what you do that people say you're Photoshopped. How to become so good at what you do that people call you a fake Mm. is the the premise of the book. It's mastery in your profession by another name.
1: Mm. And that's my
0: my magnum opus. Released Mm -hmm. June 15th of this past year, 2023, which is the 12th anniversary of my very first freelance writing project
1: nice 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 way to celebrate well the details in that book will be in the show notes so people can have a look at that book so moving us on to my questions so we get through the so we get through the standard questions otherwise we otherwise we leave gaps contribution how do you see you contributing to the world
0: i have had significant influence Hmm in the marketplace and in society, and my hand has been invisible in those regards. Much of my early work is covered by non-disclosure agreements, although some of my, some of my recent stuff, as my own personal brand has, has has grown, more and more people have wanted me to be affiliated with it publicly because they will sell more copies. <laughs> Now, uh, which is kind of kind of fun.
1: Yes, when you're more famous than the person you're writing for, is a bit a bit weirder, isn't it?
0: Yes, well, then, well, then they want my 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 name associated with it in some way, so they will. And then, then
1: you get to pick and choose your projects in that case, don't you?
0: Yes. <laughs> the impact that I have is wild because it's not like okay. <clears throat> billions of people believe x let's say it's more so it's now common in this industry and that niche in this market amongst this group of people to think this way about the problem Hmm. and to use this language to describe it to, to 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 think of it that way and it's just it's it's ubiquitous and yet, it's traceable to me in my work over the last twelve years, writing 84, 80, 84 books. I think at this point, like I've written more books than most people have read, and I've forgotten. No, I've forgotten more books that I've written than most people have ever read mm. in their adult lives at, at this point. So people ask me, Josh, have you ever written a book on organizational culture? Yeah, probably six, seven, maybe. Like really, and I have to think about. How do you you, um,
1: (laughs) stop your own thoughts coming through on these books when you're writing something like that?
0: Oftentimes they have to. And that's a good thing because I've written so many books. I know what readers like and what they don't like, where they want deeper knowledge, where they don't want the author to go deeper, to expand on something versus not expanding on uh, something. And so having someone write your book who's already written so many means that all of the early bird mistakes that the book would have that would doom its commercial viability are not present. Hmm. They're just not present in the book. And what they get is the most commercially viable version of the book that they can use for their business purpose. Yeah. So the number one most common type of author i work with is somebody who is a CEO or is an entrepreneur or is a business owner. They are highly capable at what they do. And yet they are not recognized as the quote-unquote go-to authority in their space. No. Because their profile is lower, it's smaller. It takes them a while to ha- handle objections, close the sale. They're constantly having to say the same thing to clients and potential clients year after year after year. Dish out the same advice, answer the same questions, give the same interviews and it's just becoming a bit of a groundhog day, yes, referencing the uh, Groundhog Day bill Murray movie <clears throat> and they're they're a bit done with that, so what they want is a book which is their magnum opus, which is their masterpiece, their story all rolled into one. it's their system, it's their standard operating procedures, their knowledge base that they can reference um i have one one client he described his book as his own Bible for his consulting business. Hmm. He can show up and reference chapter and verse, <laughs> or more, more so in this case, uh, you know, chapter, section, page number. Yes. Of what, of what to do, which makes his job all the easier. And what he does now is he will just simply mail a copy to a CEO he wants as a client. He'll say, hey, I think you'll get a lot out of this book, particularly chapter four. Yes. pages six. Page, page sixty-four to yeah. sixty-seven. Yeah. This, try this out inside of your inside of your, with your team next week. Let me know how it goes. Right? Is it, dude? It worked. Let's talk. <laughs> that is, by the way, is the best way to generate sales qualified leads of all the ways that could be done with marketing, advertising, marketing, sales, sending a prospect your book and telling them what page that to, to read that's going to be most relevant to them and helpful, and then to try that right now. There's nothing better
1: than that well it's so unusual isn't it and someone's taking the trouble to send them a book it's like wow you know hmm. and i Versus guess there's everyone
0: this, else who's cold messaging them on linkedin let's say hi name
1: cold messaging holder. is totally dead and they just haven't realized yet they're dead but they have their own it's like phone calls they're dead too and people haven't realized that one yet either but it's like yeah. And I've had this conversation with them. Why do you think you randomly calling me is going to do you any good? About... anyway, there we are. So how do you on the on the contribution thing, which I think is brilliant where well, your way of working because it is true it's what you're saying about the contribution you you give to people. How do you contribute to yourself? How do you look after yourself? because that's a contribution to your life as well.
0: Yes. So I need to have a couple of things. One of which I found is managing my energy is essential. Mm. And so, frankly, exercising in general, weightlifting specifically, three, four days out of a week, essential for energy for mood, for sleep, for strength, because they have two little kids who are on, I mean, when they wake up, they are on, and they are not off until they fall asleep. So being able to keep up with them and roughhouse and wrestle and, you know, carry them around, sometimes carrying on both of them at the same time, having appropriate muscle for that is quite helpful. So that's the first thing I found. The second thing is having a personal project of my own that I am excited about. And the past year, that has been my my book. Prior to that, for a number of years, it had been my uh, writing courses. I have maybe 12, 13, 14 writing courses that I've created, that I've launched, that have sold several thousand copies collectively. That has been fun and, and great because I can I can teach my methods to others. And sometimes those result result in people saying Joshua I took your course I don't have time to implement it can you just do it for me and write my book the way you talk about it in your course
1: yes yes perfect perfect uh, it's interesting to see it, it's nice to hear that you look after yourself because I think that, that's one thing I notice with people is that the the ones that I, I think have got the things sorted who have noticed that the contribution to themselves is important it's so easy to give 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 in the world and not so easy to Actually, give to yourself, and I think those things are really valid. So yes, it's
0: knowing what it's knowing what you you personally need. What's the bare minimum, and doing it. Yes, it's hard, but yeah. it's a decision. It's not oh, I really want to do this. I need to do this. I, I I really want to need to do this. I really need to want to do this, but it's deciding that you're going to do it.
1: Yes, making a decision to do it. Yes, I have the same thing. I'm a runner, so I so it's like. Some days it's raining, I go, maybe i go later. No, just go now. It's hard, but sometimes you have to do it. So let's cover the point of meaning. What are you doing it all for? Why, why do you do it all? How, what does it all mean to you? What does life mean to you?
0: What life means to you, what life means to me is a fascinating question. Because I haven't quite figured out anything beyond a, to use internet speak, a TLDR or a too long didn't read or what's, what's the gist? It's something like creating order Hmm. out of the chaos, doing what you know you need to do. Doing what you know needs to be done. And those two things take you really far. Notice since humans, as a species, or different species of humans that have existed, when we consult with archaeologists and paleontologists, what they, what the anthropologists, what they would Call out as meaningful, which we can intuit from their, their research, their papers, the museum displays, and so on and so forth. What humans have always found meaningful since humans could find anything meaningful was creating order out of chaos <coughs> and doing their duty to one another. And often that took the representation of tools, talismans, and treasure. The three Ts, the oldest artifacts that in some cases go back hundreds of thousands and even a million or so years are those three things. So what are tools for? Tools are for remaking the natural world into our own image. It's taking the chaos of, let's say, of a green space and Cultivating it, farming and gardening are examples of order from chaos, right? We have a we have um, quite a few fruiting trees and bushes in our backyard garden of our of our own that we that we run. So I get a little bit of meaning of that, but it also is perhaps some ancestral memories activated. <laughs> That's why I do it. But the tools are about creating order out of the chaos. Mm. It's about doing what we know we need to be doing which is taking care of our loved ones and our families so that we can journey on to the next generation and so on and forth and so forth, that they have better off than, than we did. And the, 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 the talismans we noticed are these physical objects that have some sense of spiritual meaning. And that could be we literally believe that this is an idol that we worship, or this is the, the an effigy of a spirit, for example, or it could be that this is something that is our reminder of who we are what we're meant to do. I think we all have our own talismans, our physical objects that remind us. Some of my quote unquote talismans are fossils that I've collected over the, over the years because they are reminders of how long life has gone on, how old things are, and it put things in perspective for me mm. in, uh, in an almost spiritual way. So I can, so for example, this is a piece of horn coral from the Silurian period that's found in the sandstone of Ohio. This little creature, paleontologists say, lived 440 million years ago when Ohio wow. looked like the Bahamas. Wow. And so this is a little talisman. If I meditate on it, hold it, look at me, it is... It is an alteration of consciousness that I experience with that talisman.
1: Hmm.
0: And then, of course, there's treasure. Treasure meaning objects that have inherent value, such as, obviously, the most ancient ones being food sources, the hunting and gathering hmm. and, and, and protecting those food sources, but also eventually surplus. And what is the wisest and best way to manage, preserve, and grow that surplus for the next generation? And what we now are finding is that the too long didn't read has become a bit longer, and you did, in fact, uh, read it, so to speak, <laughs> by participating in this conversation.
1: <laughs> I, it sounds like you did really think about that one quite extensively. Yes, I have. Thank you. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our conversation or our time together. What is it you want to leave the, the listener with? What is it you want to say to them or you think is important? They need to be done. I you've got this reframe your brain behind you. I'm not sure that's relevant, but.
0: Yes, that is a book that I did uh, recently with um, a well-known cartoonist turned best-selling author turned uh, persuasion mm-hmm. expert by the name of scott adams reframe your brain is a collection of 160 we call them uh reframes but also uh, self-persuasion techniques to create greater happiness and energy and success All right. in your life and a reframe comes from the the world of hypnosis which is working with the subconscious mind to get what you want from life yeah and to get less of what you don't want
1: yeah yeah
0: so perhaps it might be to check out reframe your brain and so good they call you a fake which (laughs) by the way it's itself a reframe i don't want negative attention is the usual frame the reframe is i'm so good at what they do that i want haters i want to be called a fake that means i'm doing something
1: right i I, I do struggle with that concept particularly in politics at the moment but it does seem to be working in terms yeah. of people that are creating haters, get a lot of attention. Yes, I and in those... the context
0: of, of entrepreneurship from self-employment, <clears throat> that's what's most valuable of all is the attention of of, of other humans. Mm. And so, I have had as firsthand experience people calling me liar, cheater, fraud, mm. scammer, fake, etc., and then sharing that far and wide. And then, hey, I saw people saying a bunch of stuff about you. I checked you out. Good stuff. I, I bought three of your courses. <laughs> <laughs> that That is the story of my of, of my life since kind of becoming a micro niche uh, celebrity and influencer in my own right.
1: Well, that's, that's fantastic. So is there any final thoughts you want to add to this conversation?
0: I would hook back to this tools, talismans, and treasure concept for creating maximal meaning in life. Hmm. what are the tools like i mean i mean physical tools not not software what are the physical tools that are most meaningful for you that create order from chaos for me one of my tools is a 50 pound kettlebell Hmm. it creates order out of the chaos of my mind and body frankly of of modern postmodern life Mm -hmm. treasure our garden and fruit trees and fruit bushes Mm -hmm. and the experience of taking our kids out and basically having breakfast from our own land
1: Mm, nice
0: during the summertime and in the fall it's fantastic and then what is your talisman what is a physical object that brings you awe and quiets your mind. This, of course, is why Roman Catholic believers have so many literal talismans. Same with Orthodox Christians, and it's not just those religions, but other other religions have physical objects that are windows into heaven.
1: Yes. For example, because it's something you physically you can touch. You can't touch the Creator, but you can touch this thing as as a, as a substitute yes. for or
0: an abstraction, like a hmm. doctrine. Hmm. Because I have a couple of icons my, my, myself, and they're, they're not as meaningful to me, frankly, as these fossils. Since I, I found them myself, and there's a story behind them. Sometimes yeah. I found them with with my son taking my son. You know, he likes yeah.
1: to explore. Uh, it's as well. always the story that's attached to it. That's the same. Anything is about the story that's attached to it. It's more important than the thing. Is the mnemonic for the story? Yes. And and the, the journey you have with it. So, how would people connect with you? Should they want to have a book written or? Find more information about the courses and things you do?
0: Yes, I'm over at lisecghostwriting.com, L I S E C. And then my, I've over three, maybe 350 videos on all things book writing, book publishing, writing, persuasive writing, marketing on my YouTube channel. Nice. Uh, again, at Joshua Lysak, TikTok as well, Instagram, at Joshua Lysak. There's, uh, on you know, whatever your favorite platform is, you'll find my video content there. But my most up-to-date and interesting shenanigans are over on the Twitter app now called the X platform.
1: Well, Joshua Lysek, thank you so much for being on this journey with us today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you.
0: My pleasure, Paul. Thank you.
1: All the best. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Joshua Lysek. If you would like to connect with Joshua, do check out his website, which is LysakGhostWriting.com. You can also find him on Twitter, Joshua Lysak, on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram and TikTok. Now all of those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means, that is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought. Because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions, e-book and worksheets. Now, this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery. And it's at the amazing price of just 12 99 So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing, and of course, sharing it with a friend, because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.